Welcome to the Old Galway Diary Podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, great, lovely. How are you? Morning, Tom. How are things in Bar? I am very well, thank you. Yeah. I am very well. And why wouldn't I be living in Galway? I know, I know. in Galway. Yeah. I, I often sense. feel spoiled and blessed. Well, Tom, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And there's a great sense of holiday in the town as well. A lot of visitors, I'm glad to say, walking yeah. at a very slow pace <laughs> up and down the town, photographing the things that you and I wouldn't look twice at, but they're photographing them and standing <laughs> yeah. before yeah. things and Indeed. having their pictures yeah. taken. And it's great. It really is. There's a sense of yeah. holiday in the town, which I really love in the summertime. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Here, here. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Tom, we better get on with our own business now so we can get out in the sun. How how are we this week? What are you going to tell us this week? Well, last week I was talking about a Galway institution that was introduced, the BISH, the secondary school, introduced by the Patrician Brothers to take yeah. care of what were described as the lower orders then. And this week I am writing about another Galway institution that was also introduced to take care of the lower orders, and that <laughs> is Our Ladies Boys Club. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this was set up by a Jesuit, a Father Leonard Shield, in 1940-41, at a time when there was really a lot of grinding poverty in Galway. And there were absolutely no recreation facilities no extracurricular activity at all for young people in working class areas, like, for example, the Clada or Chantala or Bormore or the West, as it's called. Uh, and the club provided all of these through their what they call their club nights. And it was set up in 1941. <clears throat> and it is now today the longest running youth club in the country and a major, major institution. Well, Tom, and I know for a fact that your family have been, have a long association with that club. And we I have indeed. Yeah. My father, do. I know that my, my yeah, father joined us after, after the first couple of years and right. devoted much of his life to it and yes. to the boys as well. But they still talk to me about him, Good. you know, which is, is very nice. Yeah. Uh, our president, Michael D., when he was opening the new clubhouse that they have now in Sea uh, Road, he, he, he came up with a very interesting line. He said, there is nothing as Galway as Our Ladies Boys Club. Oh. I, I always thought, God, that's hitting the nail absolutely on yeah. the head. Because it has been a source of guidance and inspiration, to thousands, to thousands of young men and boys ever since it began. And especially those from a working class or deprived background. And, you know, <clears throat> from their first days of kind of nervous energy and <laughs> when they were joining up, you know, all through imagine. their teens yeah. and even 
when they became adults, the spirit and the watchful eye of the club is always with them. And it, I know that because people stop me on the street and they reminisce yeah, they about do. this event yeah. and that event. Yeah. yeah. They were very lucky in the beginning that it was a Jesuit because uh, they, the Jesuits loaned them a space behind the Columban Hall on uh, Sea Road. And they had their club nights there a few times a week. They, they would organize into teams. They would have supervised games, little competitions. They played different kinds of games like darts, drafts, rings, volleyball, basketball, ground ball, and skittles. And there was a certain amount of free time as well. They had a couple of snooker and billiard tables and table tennis tables. And, of course, there was a lot of mixing and talking and chatting. In those early days, they also learned drilling. We're back to the drilling as they were in the bishop. Right, I know. And, uh, yeah. But they always said the rosary towards the end of the night. And then, very importantly, the boys were all given a mug of tea and a thick slice of bread and jam. Now, that doesn't <laughs> sound like much, but no. it was a major supplement I bet it for was. the diets of many of those kids. So this club, this generic youth club, <clears throat> was and is the critical core of Our Ladies Boys Club. And without it, I think, uh, a lot of other aspects of the club yeah. would never have made it. it. It offers a kind of a peculiar mix of spiritual direction yes. and games and sport and camaraderie and, and training in basic skills. <clears throat> you know, so they... They started off by setting up sports clubs. Uh, Amby Roach and Mick Lohan started a boxing club, uh, a boxing section, and they trained a lot of boys in, in the art of boxing. Eddie Fahey, who was the coach builder, and Mickey Sullivan, they started uh, training soccer teams, and they still play soccer to this day. Father Michael McGrath, who had been a rugby coach in Mungret, he introduced the game of rugby to them in the 50s, and they're still playing these games. They, <clears throat> they also, in the early days, they had Irish dancing, and they won a lot of All-Irelands and medals and feshes and things like that. But all of those were very important, but really it's the core work of the, the club that's the most important thing. Anybody that got into trouble, that stepped out of line, that were a bit unfortunate, they were supported and taken care of to the best of ability. Uh, you know, they were supported in court. People went bail for them if they were in trouble. If they went to jail, they were visited in jail. And they never forgot this. Many of them yeah. never, ever forgot it. And uh, they were helped to sort out their problems, really. <clears throat> and today, today, uh, there are club boys in every walk of life in this city, happily, and elsewhere, and all over the world, indeed. And they've made a success of their lives in, in a commercial sense and also in, in their civic efforts. And a lot of them will tell you how it was their formative years in the club that influenced them. Lovely. Uh, and, and influenced their outlook on business and on family and all. I mean... <clears throat> I remember in, in the 40s, it was about uh, combating poverty, really. Uh, but in the 50s, it was kind of about training boys to emigrate to the UK. 
And in simple things, they were learning things like how to get a driving license. Right. Uh, how much overtime should you work? Uh, should you go to the market on Saturday with your wife? How much money do you hand over to your wife every weekend from your paycheck? Simple, basic things like that, but that really meant an awful lot to them and, and still does. <clears throat> but for almost all of them, certainly in the early days, they will tell you that the greatest days of their life, the most magical days of their life, were the days they spent on camp. Now, <laughs> camp is a unique institution within this right. club. Yeah. It's a week-long holiday for about 80, 90 boys. Uh, <clears throat> it's organized completely now by ex-boys, young fellows who have come up through the ranks and who are now adults and who had the joy and the benefit of <clears throat> coming up through the club uh, and now are giving back. And <clears throat> so it's a very highly organized week. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have a lot of games. Uh, <clears throat> the kids are all divided into teams. Yeah. There are competitions. There are points for everything. Like, for example, making how neat the beds are made in your dormitory. Uh, <laughs> you oh know, uh, if yeah. you're on fatigue, and fatigue can mean either cleaning up the building or doing the wash-up after a meal. <laughs> uh, there are points for that. There are points for games. And they play a lot of games and it's all very healthy and it's all mixed in with they go to mass every morning. Uh, they have a rosary every evening. So there's a spiritual element to it all through the whole week. Uh, but it's, it's full of competitions, entertainment and great crack. And they make great, great friends. Uh, and the reason I am <clears throat> talking about all of this and using some old boys club photographs, this week is that next week they are going on their 80th camp, <laughs> 80 camps. Now they had oh, a two year break, right. unfortunately because of COVID, but they have all, the camp costs money, as you can imagine, bringing yeah. that number of children. How many, and how many are going Tom? How many? There, there are about 80 or 90 kids. Oh. Uh, that's, but, but there would be about 15 or 20 adults with them. Uh, they do the cooking, they do the organizing, they referee the games, they, you know, they drive them here and there. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it's very important. And it's actually an awful lot of ex-club fellas will take their holidays, take their holidays in order to go to camp to help these young kids today. It's, it's a remarkable sense of loyalty to the club. Right. But as I say, it costs money. And they have always, if, thanks to the generosity of the people have gone with, they've always managed to get enough money together. Right. But they're looking again this year yeah. after a two-year break. So I am appealing for help for Our Ladies. It's one of the great Galway institutions, as Michael D. Higgins said. And so if anybody would like to help to make any kind of a donation, they can please by sending it to Pat Giles, care of Our Ladies Boys Club, C Road, Columban Hall, C Road, Galway. The camp, incidentally, is in St. Coleman's College in Clare Morris, and it's their 30th camp there. <laughs> Before that, for many years, they were based in La Coutre Castle in near Gort. 
but they were in places like Mount Bellew, Clifton, Roundstone, uh, Loch Ina. They moved around quite a bit in those days. And um, but no matter how hard, you know, the going was, uh, yeah, sure, miserable sure. the weather was, you have just these oh. golden memories of of the. So that's what my appeal is. Oh, that's lovely. Speak. Yeah, well, Tom, I'm glad. And I, I think it, it should be acknowledged. I know the energy your dad put into that organization, particularly, it really was one of his, you know, you know, really worthwhile <coughs> public charities and that he wasn't a bit ashamed to look for money around town. He oh, called no. to us and others no, no, looking no, for no. money and nobody denied it to him because they knew the value of what he was doing. No, uh, you know, no, they, they were his family. And, and yeah. uh, indeed, it was fitting that it was by his club boys who carried him. His coffin to his oh, grave. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. Okay. Well, well done, Tom. Again, I think that's great. And I hope the weather is fine for the camp because golly, having all yes. those boys confined when they're in holiday mood, I tell you, there'll be great energy certainly <laughs> emanating from wherever they are confined. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so let's pray for good weather. Good yeah. man, Tom. All right. Well, listen, I am finally, finally coming to the end of Michael Henry Burke. He died in 1935. His eldest son, William St. George Burke, inherited Ballydugan House and its estate. William now was the one who tried to live with his father some years previously when Burke in his 70s was struggling to run the farm and to deal with his agitators. The two men found it impossible, Tom, to live in peace. But now, <laughs> having the place to himself, William and his wife, Claire, and their two daughters, Claire and Honora endeavoured to embrace country life in the style of the Burke ancestors. I come to that in a moment. Just on the wife, Claire Heilman de Rocks, the daughter of a French diplomat and a member of what was considered high society, she found Ireland's climate unpleasant and she was frequently frustrated by the untrained household staff. But however, William and Claire met at a diplomatic party in Washington. As an educated gentleman, he was educated, by the way, in English public schools. William had few farming skills, as a lot of educated gentlemen were the same, had few farming yes, skills, indeed. and was idling away his youth as a cowboy on his cousin's ranch in Montana and as a lumberjack in Canada. But the two were married in San Francisco, where Claire's father was consul general. And Claire had never been to Ireland before, and she didn't know her in-laws or anything. She was not familiar with her surroundings, believing only that the only forms of social interaction offered to a young wife starting life were fox hunting and going the rounds of auctions in which the big houses were being sold up. William, however, loved life in the as a country gentleman. He was, quote, a noted horseman and patron of the turf, in 1956, he broke his neck falling from his horse Vino de Pasto at the Tum races. He spent a year in hospital and resumed racing only to fall again at the Mullingar races. But despite these serious accidents and setbacks, he continued to ride at race meetings. In 1960, Tom, he had two horses called Uncle Whiskers and Irish Coffee running at the Aintree Grand National, one of which he rode himself at the age of 58 years. Wow. 
<laughs> and eventually his energy was burnt out and he died in Germany when he was on holidays in 1963 and is buried in the Burke tomb at Ballydugan House reputedly with his riding tackle. Now, a neighbour who attended the funeral recalled that, and I'm quoting this neighbour, Jack Fallon led the big Clydesdale horse up the hill, a big horse and cart and the coffin above it. No horse, no hearse or nothing. They were down to earth people, the common way, no big motors or nothing. So <laughs> that's the end of him. Yes. Burke's second son, just to fill in the background to the family, Robert Malachy Burke, known as Bobby Burke, was a totally different kettle of fish. How it happens that children from the one family are so different to each other, Tom, I can't explain. But this was certainly a case of <coughs> ordinary differences between the two boys. Now, as his brother William lived the life of a country squire, Bobby became a noted Christian socialist and philanthropist. At his mother's birthplace at Tour Moor near Chew, he established an innovative cooperative farm and later became a Labour Party representative on Galway County Council. He was appointed to the agricultural panel in Shannon Aaron in 1948, but two years later he resigned his seat. On the death of his mother, Ethel Maud Henry, he inherited her estate at Tourmore, which he gifted to the Irish Health Authorities for use in its struggle against tuberculosis. When his father finally got an eviction order to remove the notorious troublemaker Michael Dempsey from his land, Dempsey wrote to Bobby, pleading for more time. His wife, he wrote, was so shocked that she was hanging between life and death. But Bobby, who was well aware that his father had long embattled with his tenants in a manner which he didn't approve of, actually, appealed to his father and the eviction was postponed for some months. Now, 1951, Bobby took up a position with an Anglican charity in Nigeria. And for many years, he and his wife, Anne Grattan, worked with various African organizations. The couple retired to Belfast, his wife's place of birth, where Bobby died in 1998, all fairly recent. Yes. Indeed. And finally, just a word on poor, poor wife of Michael Henry Burke. She was Ethel Maud Henry. Um, she fled from Ballydugan and her marriage the night of the big house was burnt in June 15, 1922. She never went back and never met her husband again, or her former husband again. She and the two maids were forced into hiding while the house was set alight, and remembered forever the sound of the floors crashing down upon each other as the house was consumed in flames. The next day, shaken and distressed, the poor woman shot, sought help from friends, and went to her family home at Tourmore, never to return or never to leave it. It is acknowledged among the family that the relationship between Burke and his wife was to quote, full of sorrowful tension. Mrs. Burke was described as one of the old school in her latter years with a very conservative manner and a strong devotion to her church, which benefited well from her estate at Tormore. After the burning of Belly Dugan House, she claimed 2000 pounds compensation for the loss of personal items. But I can assure you, Tom, she never received a penny. <laughs> but look, after William St. George's death, his wife, Claire, the French-American, took over the running of the state. And for a time, 
the old hostility between the former tenants and Burke came forward again. There were instances in the 1970s of damaged walls and cattle drives still pressing the Burks to sell more of their land. The Connick Tribune reported that the Gardaí were investigating one particular incident where £500 worth of damage was caused. Locals attempted to, quote again, uh, to drive the old woman off the land, but their resolve was consistent with all that of the previous Burks, and she held her ground. During the bank strikes of 1970, the estate was dealt a serious blow when a large sum of money went missing, which was never recovered. Claire, however, was quite innovative. She introduced dairy farming to the estate, which helped rejuvenate Bally Dugan's business. Now, William and Claire Burke, as I said, have two daughters, Claire and, and, and Honora, and they enjoyed carefree childhood on the estate. They were privately educated by a tutor, a Miss Black, before being sent away to school. And today, Tom, the house and estate is run by Claire, now Claire Besnoin, old Burke's granddaughter, who has lived at Ballydugan for almost 30 years. Miss Besnoin is well aware of the past difficulties which her grandfather endured and which are never discussed, by the way. They remain undealt, un undealt with baggage. This is according to Anna Reardon. She has attempted a number of outreach community events, including heritage visits, ecumenical, I can't say it. Ben will have to edit that for me, please. <laughs> Meetings and special occasions. Yeah. Now, Anna Reardon, in her excellent book of the burning of Ballydugan House, quotes a neighbour who reflected on the past, speaking about today. The landowners, says the neighbour, stood a step above us all, but people do not attach that notion of status in modern times. There is goodwill towards the Burks now from all the people around. You can feel that. There is no bitterness towards her, Claire Besnoy, or her family good. at all now. Good, good. I would like to think that that is true, and I'm, I'm sure it is. There's no reason why it shouldn't. But, Tom, you know me. I can't quite let it go at that because <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed Anne's book. I think it's excellent. But I'm looking again now at this class, this landlord class, uh, you know, the, the, this landlord class who in a period of few years uh, were, were decimated. By the end of the 18th century, Tom, Cath Catholics only owned 5% of the land of Ireland. But yeah. by the end of the second decade of the 20th century, the Catholics owned 75% of the land, a total revolution in 11 years. And we're, you know, we're, we're obsessed with 1916 and the War of Independence and the Civil War. This was a revolution of even greater impact, you could say. And yes. I don't think it's given the, uh, you know, the, the emphasis that it deserves. Now, the next great catastrophe facing the landlord class, and I'm speaking now about the people who remained, who sold their land, uh, or a great deal of their land, but retained enough land to farm and remained in their house. The next great challenge they were facing was the First World War, 1914 to 1918. And 
extraordinarily, they felt a duty of, to king and country. They didn't see the writing on the wall. They didn't see, there's another group of people in the north of Ireland that don't see the writing on the wall either and are holding out, trying to make a difference. But I'm sure history will repeat itself with the DUP party in the north of Ireland as it did with the landlord class at this time, Tom. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. by the end of the war, I read that 82% of the landed families in the in Ireland, 82% of the landed families had all served in the front during the First World War and were decimated. Elder sons, oh. second sons were all yeah. killed. So the, the big houses were becoming denuded of people, were becoming emptied. And of course, they foolishly looked to England for succor. But Balfour, the hero of mine that I often quote, I found an even better quote from him the other day, that when he was Chief Secretary of Ireland in 1887, he said, what fools the Irish landlords are. Some are stupid, some are criminal, many are injudicious. He had absolutely no sympathy for them. And yet they still hung on with this kind of loyalty to King country and unity, which was extraordinary, and in fact was their doom. So I might pick up that, I can't resist it, I might pick up that challenge <laughs> next week and just talk a little bit about the land, the people that remained, that sold their land, did their best to comply with their tenants, saw their tenants prosper around them, but stayed on because they loved Ireland. They actually loved Ireland and they yeah. felt Ireland was their home, despite I would say their, you know, misdirection of their loyalties. But anyway, that's next week, Tom. Well, it's fertile land for ploughing for you. Just so keep look, going. Exactly that. Keep exactly. going, especially if you're enjoying it so much. I can't resist. Because we are. We are. It, it, you know, <laughs> the Ballydugan story is, is extraordinary. It is an amazing story. What a man. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still yeah. there today. I, I'd never seen it. I had never been there. But, no, no, uh, I, yeah, no, I have no, photographs no. of it rebuilt. It looks absolutely magnificent in a, in a conventional way. It's not a Georgian house or anything like that. It's a big, big house, you yeah. know, basement, two or three floors, big, big house. The land's beautifully looked after. Yeah, it's very fine. Very fine. Yeah. Okay, Tom. Right, right. Well, until next week. We'll go. Take care, yeah. Tom. Yeah, God bless you. Talk again soon. Bye-bye.